You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 92. I'm your host, Bill White. Chris Webster couldn't make it today because he's too busy partying in Italy. On today's show, we're going to talk to folks from Adventures in Preservation and the Fairfield Foundation about archaeology, historic preservation tourism, and fixing old buildings around the world that could use a little TLC. So if you've got some time to figure out how you can raise the roof in St. Joe and help save some historic buildings, just go ahead and kick back because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Today on the CRM Archaeology Podcast, we've got um, Sonia Huttmacher in Ogden, Utah. Hello. And Doug Rocks McQueen in Scotland. Hello. And I'm Bill White. As you can tell, it's not Chris Webster. I'm stepping in for him. I'll be the guest host today. All right. Today's show, we have an amazing organization, uh, Adventures in Preservation. And I was looking at their website over the last couple of days, and it seemed like it was the kind of job that I always wanted to have, but I didn't know existed. So it's amazing to learn more about it. Um, we've got uh, three folks, or we've got two folks from Adventures in Preservation, and we have someone from the Fairfield Foundation, and they're going to um, announce themselves and tell us a little bit more about uh, what they do. So go ahead, guys. Take it away. Uh, I'm Judith Broker, and I'm one of the co-founders of Adventures in Preservation and also the program director so I have what I think is the most fun job, and I get the project requests coming to me, and I get to help develop the projects and work, answer all the questions that come in from potential attendees and many other things, but my main job is program director. And I'm Jolie Diepenhorst. Um, I'm a new volunteer with AIP, and I do whatever Judith asks me to. And I'm Thane Harpold. I'm one of the co-directors of the Fairfield Foundation. Uh, we're based in uh, Tidewater, Virginia, and we've been working since 2000 on largely a colonial plantation called known as Fairfield, but we also do lots of public outreach archaeology within the community, um, and we've been expanding this to cover a broader region, and our, our partnership with AIP is a way to help us reach out and do larger um, public outreach archaeology to, um, you know, to a bigger audience. That's crazy. You guys have such a wide range of uh, areas that you're working in. I checking out the um, the website once again, um, and we'll link to that in the show notes. But you know, the archaeologists there at the Fairfield Foundation. I've I think I might have seen presentations about your work at the um, Society for Historical Archaeology conference, and then it looks like the projects that uh, Adventures in Preservation are doing. They're all over the world, Europe, um, all over the United States. So. Um, uh, Judith and uh, Jolie, can you guys please tell me a little bit more about how the whole uh, Adventures in Preservation thing started off? Uh, I can answer that. So I have a degree in preservation and in the late 90s had a job that pretty much required me to sit at my desk and the other folks, the guys went out in the field, did all the research, the work, and then they brought all the paper back paperwork back and threw it on my desk and then I had to write the reports, which I didn't really mind. But I really wanted to do something hands-on and volunteer vacations were just uh, starting to get to be kind of a big thing then. And I thought, what a perfect you know, idea for me personally and also 
for preservation to take groups of volunteers who pay and go to a site that needs help. And we actually learn the skills and do the work. So that's how it got started. And say about how long ago was that? Uh, that concept was from the late 1990s and kind of polished it up. And then Adventures in Preservation was started in December of 2001. And then we had our first project uh, in 2002. Well, two projects, one in New Jersey and one in uh, Alabama. And from there, we get requests from all over the world. So we don't actually go look for projects. They send requests to us and we've never looked back. We have about 160 requests so far over the 15 years we've been around and been able to respond to maybe 35 or so. So the need is great and we're, we are trying to expand and respond to more requests. Most of us uh, work in uh, cultural resources. So to hear that clients are looking for you, that's absolutely <laughs> kind of mind blowing. <laughs> Uh, well, so it's mind blowing, but most of them don't have funds, so that's oh, the yeah. And that's why they come to us because they can't get help other ways. I and see. we provide free labor, but then all the rest of it, you either have to get a grant or corporate sponsor. So it, it sounds great, but the money part is always tricky. Yeah, and I guess where do you get the funds? Well. Volunteer vacations, the concept is that if you want to attend, you personally, you pay a fee and it covers your food and lodging and our excursions. And then you also pay a bit for training and a little bit for materials if we don't have a grant. So sometimes, I guess often probably, that income from each person paying their way is what runs that particular session. And then at times we do get grants and on a rare occasion we've had corporate sponsorship. So is your, is your program similar to um, organizations like Historicorps? Uh, yes, the concept is similar. They work, as far as I know, or at least started working only with the federal government and had a lot of backing. So they started out out of the gate running, so to speak. They were well-funded, and I believe they only work on government sites. But, yes, the concept is, is very similar. Similar. Okay. Well, great. Um, I would like to add that um, Historicorps does not go internationally, and AIP does. They're only domestic. Oh, wow. Okay. So do, do, you, do, um, do you do programs for both private um, organizations and for the government, or are you strictly private organizations? We have tried a couple times to do partnerships, once with the Forest Service, and actually we did one with the Park Service, but they did most all of the paperwork. The difficulty has been uh, our organization fitting into the uh, myriad of rules and regulations. So uh, the Forest Service, we could never work out, even though we were working with two people who ran the program with the Forest Service. So yes, we tend to work with either community organizations, sometimes overseas, it is a government-sponsored organization, and lots of times it's just individuals. And just to add, we do 
deal with privately owned properties, which almost no one else does. Oh, wow. And it create, well, yes, it, it's true. Wow. But they come to us because nobody provides money for privately owned, you know, projects pretty much anywhere. So it wow. does create more difficulty because you can't write a grant and well, you can, but it's really hard. Yeah. The, the, uh, privately owned, uh, properties is this kind of just to improve their own property or is this because they um want to maybe build a historic preservation uh um context or a program for a certain part of a city i mean i'm thinking more along the lines of is this an individual who has a building and they want it you know uh rehabilitated or preserved versus like a neighborhood who maybe wants historic preservation uh um regulations i'm trying to think of it the uh a national historic preservation designation. Right. Well, if we take on a private property, they have to show to us that fix uh, restoring their building would have a benefit to the whole community. So we we don't just take on even if it's a great historic building, we won't go fix your roof or whatever so you can live in your house. So Usually, it's a pro, and it also once we work on the property, it needs to be in some way open to the public, and so maybe it would provide community meeting space, or I, you know, there's many ways it could go. And I would say in Eastern Europe, where we've worked quite a bit, the properties do tend to be privately owned. But for instance, in Castra, Albania. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So it is truly an amazing place and falling down. And so if we work on one person's house, they try to spread it around so everybody gets a little bit of help. But it definitely benefits the whole community. So uh, that, that argument works a little better when you live in a UNESCO World Heritage Site. I'm glad you did mention the UNESCO designation because um, from what I, I mean, I guess maybe you can explain a little bit more about how UNESCO designation differs from uh, national preser- historic preservation uh, designations here in the United States uh, it, as far as like tourism and stuff and uh, the way that articulates with communities. Well, I must admit I'm not an expert on that, but uh, UNESCO, uh, you can apply to UNESCO if you have a town or a site or whatever that is truly of importance to the world in the, you know, architecture that's important to the world. And if you are a UNESCO World Heritage Site, there are some very strict rules and regulations on what you can and can't do with the building. And someone, if it's not us, then it's the, for instance, in Girocastra, they have a city government and also a heritage organization that deal with UNESCO. So they know what can and can't be done, and then they tell us. So it's a, it's a process. In the U.S., if you put your house on, or if your house is listed on the National Register, there, there are rules and regulations. Um, no one can truly enforce them and the worst they can do if you don't follow the rules and you mess up your building is they take you off the national register. Um, 
And if you're a UNESCO World Heritage Site, you're much more apt to get funding funded. If you're an, on the National Trust and, I mean, um, National Register and privately owned, I don't know. You can get tax credits maybe, but I still don't think you can get a grant. Someone else might have a better idea. I, Jolie, do you know? I'm not sure how that works. I am not an expert either. Um, we've had some experience with that. Uh, normally with the National Register not, um, status or the each individual state's register status, as they often have um, two different layers or levels, um, they, they use the carrot and the stick so that in circumstances where you might have to be on the state or federal or federal registers in order to qualify for certain grants at the state level, um, they also uh, will typically only put requirements or regulations or, or have um, penalties if you've received something financially uh, in exchange for those things. Um, so when in the case of the gas station that we're restoring in Toro and headquarters, you know, we're, we not only donated an easement, which if we wanted that easement held by the State Department of Historic Resources, it had to be on the state and federal registers. Um, but also when pursuing the state historic rehabilitation tax credit, it also required us to be on um, the state register of historic places. Um, and in both circumstances, if we end up violating it, uh, there is legal action that can be taken against us. So if we violate the easements, there's repercussions, but we've received a financial incentive and we've done it willfully of our own, own desire. Um, with the rehabilitation tax credits, at least in Virginia, um, they have a five-year period of recapture after the completion of the project, which then requires you to essentially follow their rules for a minimum of five years, um, which essentially says to the taxpayer of the state uh, that the money that each individual property owner is getting um, to help rehabilitate their private property um, is in fact benefiting the state and the people who are seeing it for a minimum of five years. And oftentimes we all know that that um, a period often goes much longer uh, just by inertia um, and that people get used to a place like that. It comes into the public memory and then um, it can be more difficult to go ahead and to change things. Although there's always the folks out there who are more than happy to change a bunch of things the day after the five years lapse. Uh, this is David Brown. He joined us a little bit late in the show, but sounds to me like he knows the ins and outs of the uh, National Historic Preservation Act tax credits. So the uh, it sounds to me like the comparison between UNESCO and um, the NHPA is that in UNESCO's case, you're dealing with something that's of world heritage that's kind of of value to the entire world. But uh, in my experience, it seems to me like there's also some kind of um, tourism aspect or uh, some kind of other motivation to bring this place to light for the rest of the world. Whereas um, as far as historic preservation, it seems like it's more for the community and individuals who own the properties are trying to preserve these things um, because they think they're important for the community, but there's not the same kind of tourism incentive. Is that right? Uh, I, I'm not so sure about that. In almost every community we've worked in, whether it's Eastern Europe or, you know, St. Joe, Missouri or wherever, heritage tourism is a huge incentive to keep your historic buildings restored because uh, especially when Americans travel and Europeans too, they choose places that have historic integrity and they spend their money. 
And in the case of Eastern Europe, some of their economies, that is their only way to survive is through tourism. So it may be more obvious at some of the UNESCO sites, but I do believe even in the US where we have a lot of other ways to make money, tourism is very important. So I think it applies to both. And, and I would add that, um, although I think the UNESCO designation, um, yeah, I think, I think it brings a lot of um, you know, importance to it. It's an international recognition. I think a lot of the efforts in the United States, you know, putting properties on the National Register, those, they're much more locally based. Um, sometimes it's very small organizations that are doing the work. Sometimes it's individuals. But, you know, I agree with Judith. It's, it's really all about how much your local community wants to focus on historic resources and on heritage tourism. And uh, I think there's a lot of good examples of local communities, you know, putting, putting, putting effort towards that and they reap the benefits of the, of the tourism that comes from it. I guess that's my next question right now. Uh, I live in Tucson, Arizona, and we just got the designation as uh, the United States first world city of gastronomy, which I think is well-deserved. I mean, the food is pretty tasty here. But I know that a lot of that um, motivation behind that push was to, <clears throat> excuse me, get more tourism here. And I'm just kind of wondering, I guess I'm playing devil's advocate, with so many things com uh, competing for heritage tourism dollars, I mean, do you think this is a good path forward for uh, historic preservation? I think it is in the sense that a lot of us travel sort of locally. Or on the weekend, you say, oh, well, I'm in Colorado, three-day weekend, maybe I'll go to Tucson, instead of I'm going to go to Albania and look at a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So, yes, I think it is important, um, regardless of how much competition you have, but it's an incentive to do it well. Yeah, and I, I actually agree, um, you know, once again with the Tucson example, uh, I live in a town where there's, I don't know, four or five, it seems like 7,000 Starbucks and McDonald's and all that stuff. And you know that that's what's going to be, uh, you know what's on the menu there and you know exactly what you're going to get. And then when you learn out, learn about all these other small restaurants and um, other places that you can go and try, it actually pushes you to go out of your comfort zone. So like you were saying, traveling locally, you know, you might go to the next town over and you know they have a holiday inn. But if they've got a historic bed and breakfast, perhaps you will choose that over, um, you know, staying at the Holiday Inn. So I guess maybe there is room for uh, more uh, heritage tourism. I personally, as a preservationist, a cultural resources person, I would love to see that be just the default and that only by, you know, uh, lack of other choices, you would choose the... Um, the big national chains over a local place, but I don't know if we'll ever get to that point. Well, and I think local news stations, at least in Denver, are very good at pointing out the great B&Bs or the new local restaurant that has high you know, ratings. So I, I think it's much easier for us now to all be informed about that. Exactly, exactly. Okay, well, that's a perfect time to stop for our first break, and we'll come back to you after the short message. Professional Certifications for Scientists, or PCS, aims to provide practical educational videos, field guides, knowledge tests, professional certifications, and employment connections to professional scientists everywhere. Check out the jobs page for job listings in contract archaeology. 
Post a job for just $50. All of PCS's jobs are verified and checked for completeness. Find PCS jobs at www.pcscourses.com forward slash jobs. PCS, a place for good scientists to become great science professionals. So uh, welcome to the next segment. Um, uh, I uh, had a couple of questions about this hands-on volunteer vacations. Like, how do you sign up? What do you, what do you get assigned to do? Can you sign up for certain types of work? Um, obviously, costs are going to be different because if you're going to Europe, that's one thing. Whereas if you're going to, like, I don't know, Tennessee, that's completely different. Like, how does that work? Um, I, I, I'm very interested in how you combine uh, preservation and tourism and um, kind of just in- involve people in their local communities and abroad. Okay. Well, the abroad part for us has been easier because we there's a small segment of the population that really loves historic preservation enough to use their vacation and pay their money to go do it. So people who love to travel come, I mean, they do have an interest in history or old buildings, and sometimes they are preservationists, but it opens up a whole new group of people because they love to travel. So they don't mind paying for food and lodging and, you know, this whole fee that that does add up, especially when you add airfare to it. So that in the U.S., we get a lot of requests saying, well, when are you going to work in my community? Well, you know, we have one or two U.S. projects, and it's not very many people's local community. So that that is a bit of a problem. But I would say overall, the people who sign up are also lovers of travel and getting out and exploring. And, okay. Yeah, go ahead. Um, what... Um so what is a, a, like a typical vacation, hands-on volunteer vacation? What's the duration of that, that period? What does a typical day look like? Uh, we usually set the programs up so that you can attend. They're usually scheduled for two weeks, but we say you can come for one or two weeks, and we try to get people to commit to a whole week. I will say since people from the U.S. are the majority of attendees, uh, they never have that much vacation. Europeans may have a month, but to get somebody from the U.S. to sign up for That's a whole true. week, some, sometimes a little difficult. Uh, so a typical day, they get there on a Sunday. We have a get-together. Everybody meets each other, and you kind of hear what's going on in that Sunday. And then during the week, Monday through Friday, pretty much we're working nine to five. And we always have an expert that we pay to come and lead whatever work is involved on that particular building. And that person teaches the skills if need be, and then uh, oversees all the work. So as people are practicing their new skills, somebody's there saying, wait, you know, do this, do that, or, oh, you're doing great or whatever. And we do some field trips, like in afternoons and evenings and on the weekends and we're pretty flexible so if everyone one day says oh let's go see whatever we jump in the van and we go do that so it's structured but you know we're not hardcore we're pretty flexible so so 
people get free time if they want it, or they can uh, they can go off on the little field trips um, in the afternoons and evenings to kind of fill yeah, time. I, I always say there's no forced labor when you come and work with us, but we have a lot more trouble getting people to stop working. Once people are there, they're so <laughs> committed and, and they're just going crazy working. But yes, we do take at least one afternoon and the weekend for travel and evenings. It kind of depends where we're located and what people want to do. Sometimes people say, no, we don't want to go. We want to finish this work. So <laughs> crazy, wow. but true. I know. <laughs> so so um, how do your field sessions work? So your field sessions are one to two weeks usually. How many people do you usually have per oh, field session? Right. We have anywhere from five to ten. If we if we only have one expert teaching and helping people with the work, it's really hard for one person to handle more than maybe eight people. So partly because we, not a lot of people know about us, which we're trying to change, we tend to have smaller groups. But I will say having a smaller group of five, six, seven, eight is really a lot of fun because you can be more flexible. You can say, oh, let's all go and you jump in the van or let's work until seven. We want to get this done. So a small group is really the best. But if you don't have enough people, then you can't pay, you know, pay for the materials and stuff. So right. our groups tend to be around that five, six or seven uh, number, which is actually very nice for both learning and for the instructor for teaching. So you've mentioned that um, it's kind of an all expenses paid, more or less, uh, yes. kind of a kind of a vacation. Um, so people are provided with breakfast in the morning, and like breakfast starts at six and goes till eight thirty or whatever. And I'm, I mean, I'm hypothesizing well, actually, just right. We drag ourselves <laughs> out of bed about seven thirty if we're lucky. Oh my and goodness. <laughs> may, yeah, maybe eight. We're not archaeologists. And <laughs> we, you know, we sit around and have a good time at breakfast, 45 minutes. Well, you know, it, it just depends. And we do try to get to work about nine. And then we have an hour or so for lunch. And then we get back to work. I will work say work is, yeah, work is a lot of fun. So just calling it work is kind of not totally correct but yes and then we work till five and then you know clean up take a walk have dinner whatever and party or whatever you want to do before you go to bed and get a good night <laughs> like typical archaeologist slash historic preservationist yeah <laughs> party in Kosovo we had a very well I won't say very young at that age is me but anyway we had a younger crowd and very energetic and very intense. So about day two, you know, they took a trip to the local store and came back with cases of beer and a few other things. And that's not our our norm, I wouldn't say, but it's fine. And everybody <laughs> had a good time. And <laughs> so every, every group is very different. That's kind of the other fun part. So or you're fun anyway. Are your uh, are your uh, uh, sessions? I'm calling them field sessions, just out of habit. Um, are these no. vacations set up back to back, or are they set up where you have one? Uh, you work for one to two weeks, and then you have like a month off, and then you come back for another couple of weeks. How does that work? 
if we had enough people to sign up, yes, they would be back to back. But we rarely have enough people registering to do that. So what we have to be careful to do, we may be at a project only for two weeks of the year. So we take on one piece of the overall project. It's rarely just us doing the whole entire thing. So our partner, whatever, wherever they are, probably have other sessions with other people doing the work and we just come. And when we work with the Fairfield Foundation, Thane can talk to that, but we were only there two weeks in the summer, one in June and one in August. But Dave and Thane have things going, you know, all year round, actually. But at the site we work at, is it all year round, you guys? Maybe. Or at least um, the summer. Yeah, we we do. Our, our foundation, the Fairfield Foundation, you know, we do stuff at the Fairfield site. But we're also doing lots of public archaeology outreach projects across a, like an eight-county region in, in eastern Virginia. So we have to balance our time at Fairfield. And we... We've been using these adventures and preservation workshops over the last couple of years to focus on the excavation of the ruins of this 1694 um, manor house that burned. So we just have essentially brick foundations and a cellar in the ground. And so we focus our time uh, two weeks a year on that. And then other times of the year, we're actually doing different archaeology on site. We'll occasionally we'll go out there you know, here and there to, to catch up um, on paperwork and, and on um, documentation, that sort of thing. But the the AIP workshops have really allowed us to focus our work um, on the house during at least those two weeks a year. It'd be great to do, you know, three or four, um, but we also want to be able to drag it out, you know, over over multiple years. So we don't want to go too fast. So another qu quick question here. Uh, do, do your groups uh, give tours to the general public, like community, uh, while you're on site? Um, do you have a lot of interest from the community? Um, we, we do have some. Um, our site right now is not, it's kind of like a typical archaeological site. It's, it's out in the middle of a cornfield. Uh, we don't have really a lot of security or anything like that. So we don't, it's not completely open to the public. But if people contact us, you know, through our website or our Facebook page and want to come out, we encourage them to do so. We get calls from people that are descended from the, the folks that lived at the, at the plantation in the 18th century and 19th century. And so we encourage them to come out. And we bring out school kids and other community groups um, throughout the year. So it's a, it's a place that we're trying to get um, more of the public to see, but also to interact. And that's, that's really our, our goal as an organization is to not just do archaeology and tell people about it. It's to do archaeology and include people in that. So, um, you know, we'd rather get five people on the site to actually do archaeology along with us than just talk to 100 people about archaeology. But, you know, we try to do a mix of both. So do you take day, uh, like day volunteers at all? Yes, um, we do. And, and actually a lot of our, a lot of our smaller excavations that we do, we'll, we'll do a lot of like one, two or three day excavations at, at different sites. And those are really designed to, you know, just get people that are walking off on the street or, you know, or, or stopping by or have contacted us and they want to do some archeology. span We'll direct them to one of these different opportunities that we, that we plan out over the year. And, and it's over a variety of different types of archaeological sites and, like I said, over a several county area. So we're trying to we're trying to fill that that niche where people really are interested in archaeology. They want to try it out and we provide those opportunities. And if I can I add something to that? Sure. <laughs> sure. Well, I was just going to say 
for us, that is a huge benefit of working with Dave and Thane and the Fairfield Foundation because they have such a strong community presence and we're only there two weeks out of the year. So in other locations where we may have a good local partner, but really the community doesn't know anything about us. We show up for two weeks and they kind of stare and what are you guys up to? It makes a big difference. And it's, it is one of the things we're working on is how, how do we have a bigger presence in the community when we're rarely there. I think it requires money and paid staff, which is a different topic. Thane, so, looking at looking at the website, Thane, it looks like you have all different kind all different kinds of properties there, but um, is the Fairfield Foundation focused on one uh, plantation that has all those things? Or are you kind of like a, a preservation consultant in the local area that uh, works on a, a bunch of different projects? We, we work on a bunch of different projects. Um, when we started out back in 2000, our, our focus was on this one plantation, which, you know, like I said, which is called Fairfield. But since then, you know, we've, we talk to people at historical society meetings or we see them at a, at a local festival where we have a booth and they say, well, you know, we'd love you to come over and look at this 18th century church. We want, we, we want to know something about this or, uh, you know, a different plantation site here. Or we want to search for, we've had this question. We don't know where this, you know, old house is that, somebody important lived at. And so we've kind of um, added to our uh, to our schedule doing a select number of other excavations that they're still research-based. You know, our, our goal is to do good research-based archaeology, um, but they're also very strategic. You know, we don't, we're not going to go in and launch a, a six-month excavation. They have to be fairly narrow because we have, you know, we're a nonprofit. We have to raise money to be able to pay for this stuff. Um, and they have to be community-focused. So that's um, things in people's backyard where public can't get access to. So we've done a lot of projects. Um, there's a local festival here in Gloucester County called the Daffodil Festival, and it's all on Main Street. And main, at the center of Main Street, we have an 18th century courthouse and a, an 18th century village that used to be, be there. There's a lot of archaeology around that, and we've been working with the county at that annual festival to do archaeology for the public. So it's two days long. We do one or two you know, five-foot test units for the public and we have thousands of people that come by and they can screen soil, help us find artifacts. Uh, and we're helping learn about this little courthouse village that was there. Um, that's really been one of our, our most uh, kind of biggest profile projects over the years. Um, on the other hand, sometimes it's a local church. They might, they might have an 18th century church building and they want to learn more about that building or they want to find where the brick kiln was located that was used to construct the building, something like that. And we'll work with a group like that to do, you know, a couple days and whether it's doing a survey, whether it's doing a test unit, you know, we'll work with, with that, um, that group to, to plan something like that and get the public involved. Um, ideally, we can also work with some of the local schools uh, or other community groups and kind of get, it, get as, many, as much traction with each project as possible. But that's, that's really our goal. I also see on your website that you've got oral histories. Uh... That, in my experience, has been a sweet way to get people involved because they don't have to, you know, older folks that are very interested and have a lot of knowledge can contribute without having to dig, which is something they may not actually be able to do. But the the richness that you get from the lived experiences of people who actually saw history happen, you know, that's that's amazing. So tell me a little bit more about how you guys integrate those oral histories into your um, heritage work. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to step all over Thane on this one, but uh, uh, he and I usually share one side of the brain or the other. So um, the oral histories are, are kind of part and parcel with what we like to look at as like preservation with a lowercase p, uh, kind of this all-encompassing approach to looking at all aspects of, of the, the past that we think the public would be you know, in, engaged in trying to preserve. And, and oral history has certainly been one of our bigger um, successes that uh, it, it's not just the process of, of reaching out to people and seeing the excitement in their eyes when, when you have a great deal of interest in what their past includes, um, but then also to see how people in the present uh, who who are, are not actually providing the histories but are in, are I guess um, really excited about accessing them about um, you know, diving deeply into them like when we excavated a site and looking for all of these uh, interesting stories that that really have a great relevance to themselves um, so we've been emphasizing as much kind of reaching out to portions of the community that have been underrepresented but also um, making sure that those things are accessible, whether they're in the, the permanent archives at the University of uh, Florida or if they're you know, copies on DVD at our local libraries. And then, as you saw on the website, making sure they're, um, the transcriptions are there and keyword searchable so that it's, it's easy for people to get access to these things. Yeah, you mentioned real fast the University of Florida. Is that the oral history uh, project that's, I don't actually know the whole thing, but I know some PhD students there. And they're doing an oral history project that has to do with archaeology. Are you guys part of that? We're one and the same, if I'm not mistaken. Um, one of our interns uh, several years ago um, uh, went and, and is currently finishing up her PhD at University of Florida in the Samuel Proctor Institute for Oral History. Um, and she's the one who we, we kind of um, knew well enough and had in the right position that could come back and simply run these things for us. And that's really, I guess, one of the wonderful things about really reaching out at all levels to the public is not just looking at students, um, but also certainly looking at students because of the long-term connections. And as they grow as scholars and, and diversify in their interests beyond what even we could teach them, um, you know, they come back and they're able to make your organization much better for what they can continue to bring you know, and, and bring back into the community. That's amazing. Uh, Judith, you guys, do you reach out to universities too for your preservation work? Uh, yes, we we have tried to get agreements with specific university programs to send their students to different, you know, as an option for their hands-on work, and that hasn't worked so well. Again, uh, agreements with a major university have been difficult for us, but we do market to students and offer that they could do an internship or independent study through us. And we've had a couple really successful uh, interns work that way, take a particular project and make that their uh, in internship or independent study. Yeah, I was going to say, I think the independent study, uh, um, I first of all, I'm a PhD student, so publicly I love the University of Arizona. But I think the easiest way to get college credit for something like this would be an independent study. So finding um, like-minded professors and having them go ahead and do the independent study work, that's you know perfect for this kind of project because trying to get it through a, um, a university department, they have bigger fish to fry than adding on you know other programs for their students. So the directed study might be the best way to get college credits. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. 
um, they have too many rules and regulations to make it easy to to add us. You got that right. Well, that's this is a perfect time for us to stop for a short break. Um, so make sure you listen to this uh, short message, and we'll see you after the break. Professional Certifications for Scientists, or PCS, aims to provide practical educational videos, field guides, knowledge tests, professional certifications, and deployment connections to professional scientists everywhere. Check out the videos page for high-quality training videos on a variety of topics. Find PCS videos at www.pcscourses.com forward slash videos. PCS, a place for good scientists to become great science professionals. Okay, I'm glad you're back and that you didn't just uh, turn off the podcast after the fact that we had a commercial. But I want to get, as an archaeologist myself, I love historic preservation, but I absolutely love archaeology. So I want to I know how um, archaeology tourism plays a role in this. Uh, the, the example that I'm thinking of uh, that comes right off the top of my head is Dig Ventures, which is a company from the UK. They've got a website. I don't really know anything about Dig Ventures other than the fact that they crowd uh, source archaeological work and they also have archaeology tourism. So any of you guys want to tackle that, how can you integrate uh, archaeology into your uh, preservation tourism? Uh, we really haven't done it that much except for with the Fairfield Foundation. But what we have found by doing that is that all we have to do is put the word archaeology in the description and it like triples the inquiries we get about attending a project. So archaeology is a huge draw. And we have a new project in St. Joe, Missouri, that has a tunnel that took supplies from the river so and that's collapsed. So we're trying to do a bit of archaeology with that project. And it would be great in a place like Kosovo or Albania or Armenia where we've worked and are still working to include archaeology. I mean, what you might find could be amazing. But again, it's uh, I guess that's not standard procedure for them. So and we don't know enough about archaeology. So we're we're trying to set that up. Um, Dave and Thane might have some additional thoughts on that yeah um i we don't necessarily call what we do archaeological tourism but i you know i think in, in essence that that is a lot of what we end up um what we end up doing for the community um because our organization has been highly volunteer um dependent since it since it began and one of the reasons for that was you know dave and i wanted to we wanted to do archaeology we, we trained as archaeologists that's our that's our passion but we also want to share that with people. So how can we get other folks involved in doing good archaeology, um, you know, while still answering the research questions and doing all the all the, the normal archaeological stuff you're supposed to do? So from the beginning, we really tried to bring in the vol in, in volunteers. You know, so you can call them volunteers, you can call them tourists in a way. Um, they're usually local, uh, although we attract people from all over the state. Um, you know, on a kind of relatively normal basis. But there's also there's, there's other groups that we work with. There's the Archaeological Society of Virginia, which is a you know state-based um, archaeology society, and they have a program, um, archaeology archaeology technician training program that promotes you know getting people involved in doing archaeology. And so that's 
you know, we're kind of doing this, the same thing. We work in tandem with that program as well. So the goal is to bring people who have that interest in archaeology. You know, they, they have always wanted to do it or they took a class in college but never got a chance to dig or they're a high school or college student. They want to try it out. You know, all of those, that entire range, they can come out and do archaeology with us. And whether they're from our local county, whether they're from across the state, you know, we provide an outlet for, for being able to do that. And I think, um, you know, it's not something that everybody can do, but there is archaeology that goes on around the world. And there are definitely ways to involve the public in that and, you know, help them um, feel that excitement, the, the, the interest that is actually doing archaeology and finding, finding things in the ground. Um, and I think that that has some real benefits in terms of, you know, making people excited about the past and excited about the place that they're that they're at and also wanting to come back. Um, and so that's that's something that we found out over over the years that we get a lot of people that they do it once. They want to keep doing it. I think they also enjoy the idea, especially with the project we do with Adventures in Preservation, that it tries to merge um, a lot of different interests and, and combine it into a single week. And that includes you know, documenting an historic ruin, um, not simply excavating, but also you know, doing detailed analysis of its architecture and then with the combination of of um uh jason whitehead who's an historic mason at colonial williamsburg uh coming in and doing you know um tutorials or, or, or basically uh, kind of demonstrating um and, and then involving them in the process of of minor rebuilding of the building itself um it kind of seems to to kind of um, bring the alpha and the omega together, brings both ends of it so that they feel like they're getting more than um, just one passion uh, satisfied. They're getting actually a lot of different um, opportunities at the same time. So so it even separates us from a lot of other archaeology programs that do you bring in people on a, on a weekly basis to assist with excavations. And the projects, the project we do with Dave and Thane is our most popular and it has the most returned volunteers of any of our projects. So it just shows that there is a great appeal for combining the two. People care a lot about archaeology. That's one of the things that I've discovered. And another thing that I discovered is that it's actually more fitting for it to be a hobby for most folks rather than an actual job because, you know, there's several reasons. All the training and everything going to school in order to become an archaeologist, that's that's kind of a, you know, a trial by fire but then also you know you have to like archaeology enough to keep doing it every single day and so folks who are volunteers they love it but they love it for like a week or a weekend they don't love it for a decade doug you've got a question yeah um and i guess it's to both organizations so uh, both you guys feel feel free to answer it what are your guys's future plans um so where where are your different organizations heading? And uh, do you guys have like a five-year plan, 10-year plan, world domination plan? Um, what are you guys going to be doing in the future? So Adventures in Preservation has been for 15 years an all-volunteer organization with no paid staff. So all of us are professionals in some field, preservation or client relations or whatever. So starting, you know, for the last year, one of our huge goals is outreach and letting people know about us and hoping to find ways to actually bring in enough money to have paid staff. So that's huge for us because 
if we could do that, we could take on more projects. And in that line, uh, for us, we're really, really considering having more combined preservation and archaeology projects. We have a request from Ghana that is finally starting to come together, and it has to do with colonialism there and the slave trade and the ships that came to the southeastern U.S. and somehow having part of the program in Ghana and part in the U.S. And uh, there, I don't know how much you want to hear, but it's partly preservation of a slave trade fort, colonial fort. And also there was a native village that was in front of the fort that I think the Danish had control at the time. And the village was a bit threatening to them, so they just buried it. And now the uh, descendants of that group would like to have it excavated. And then there's also talk about the ships and where they landed in the U.S. and could we somehow have ties. So our, I guess that is to say our goal is to have more all-encompassing projects, larger projects, than just picking one task and going to do it for two weeks. And even though it's very fun and helpful to, to make it larger. How can our listeners... Um, help you guys reach those goals or get involved in that project you're discussing? So as far as outreach, anyone who's interested in what we do, we would just ask that you share it with your friends and acquaintances and local universities, you know, whatever universities are close to you and might have appropriate programs. Because some of the projects we do, for instance, in Albania, could use structural engineers and interior designers and architects. So it's not just preservationists. And just helping us get the word out would be fantastic. And what was the second part of the question? Um, uh, well, that was mainly <laughs> it. The second was just how would people get involved in um, your Ghana project? Oh, okay. Uh, if you, well, they can email me. And if you go on our website and just click on contact us and send me an email, we at the moment are keeping a list of everyone interested. And I communicate with people personally, but also then when there is some big development, then we send out an announcement email so people know what the status is. And when the project finally comes together, we will actually have a whole page devoted to it on our website and if people want to register they can register through our website and we're hoping something will be available to actually attend and do in 2017 but it's dependent on the ghana government office so you know we're not it, it takes time but yes they can uh, send a general inquiry to adventures in preservation or email me it's all on our contact page all right um i guess then throwing the question over to david and thane what are your guys's um plans for the future and what do you guys hope to do um i guess in the next couple of years our main goal is uh is really sustainability um you know we've managed to continue this work for for 16 years we we see the interest is is steady and growing uh in our county and in our, in our region 
And we're trying to find ways to continue to do collaborations with other groups, both historic and preservation organizations, but also tourism organizations, so that we can continue this, this type of programming and make it sustainable. Um, because archaeology is terribly difficult to fundraise for. Um, and, you know, so that's, that's really one of our big challenges. We, we definitely want to continue what we're doing. We want to continue to have archaeological sites like Fairfield that are available for people to come see and and you know participate in um but also there's there's so much history out there and there are ways that we can find to do archaeology and preservation projects and oral history at a lot of these places you know if we can if we can continue the momentum so that's that's really our goal is is sustaining what we've been doing um and um you know continuing to fill that niche uh, over the coming decade how can our listeners uh, help you guys with that? Can they volunteer? Uh, what do you guys? Is there any area you guys need some help with um, that maybe some of our listeners could uh, provide? If uh, listeners are interested in what we do, you can go to our website. We have, I think, four projects listed at the moment for 2017. And if you're so inspired, you know, just register and attend. But if if you know you don't want to get that carried away like i said just um spreading the word and letting everyone know about what we do it is really a great help to us and uh, for our organization as well you can visit our website fairfieldfoundation.org um, you can read up on a number of our blogs or even sign up and see the variety of projects that we're working on um, we can use volunteers all year round. Uh, just depends on where we are, what we're doing, but um, almost everything that we do as an organization um, can use volunteers, whether that's active archaeology, whether that's uh, restoring a, a 1930s gas station, which is our one of our projects because that's going to be our headquarters, um, hopefully by the end of this year. Um, so there's a lot of different things people can get involved with, and you know we're active on Facebook at the Fairfield Foundation. So you know follow us, uh, like us and uh, come out and and work with us and i will add to that i i don't think about all that stuff but yes you know we we can also use people if they want to help if they want to write a blog or we have year-round volunteers not the volunteers that attend the projects but the volunteers that keep the organization running either through marketing or outreach or any number of ways so if people want to volunteer in that way, uh, you can also contact us, and we're happy to have you as part of the organization. Great. All that information is great. And we will provide the links to all uh, your websites and anything that we can uh, figure out that's associated with your work in the show notes for this show. So folks who are listening, um, go ahead and click on some of those links. All right. I think this was a great conversation. I learned a lot. I pretty much figured out what I want to do for my vacation from now on, but I'm going to have to (laughs) run that past my wife. And I know as long as there's cell reception and my kids can just, you know, tune into the iPad, they're down. So, uh, you know, uh, St. Joe, Missouri, we might be coming. (laughs) Bring bring your kids too if uh, if you're coming over to our our neck of the woods. Yeah, those guys are like better archaeologists than I am. So, you know, I'll I'll just stand back and you know uh, screen for artifacts, and they'll be the ones who do all the discoveries. That can that can be a good a good plan. <laughs> all right, guys, I really appreciate you being on the show. Take care. Thank Bye. You. Thank you. Thank you. 
That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Podcast. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for the episode. You can also email me at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag CRMArcPodcast or you can tag at ArcPodNet in your tweet. Please share the link to the show wherever you saw it. If you share CRM archaeology related items on Twitter or Facebook or anywhere else for that matter, be sure to use the hashtag CRMArc so the community can see and comment. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Also, please consider donating to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Your donations help fund our bandwidth and contribute to our editing costs. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. I can freeze to that. Sharks can eat me. Weird things can get into my ears and destroy my brain. Yeah, Sharknado can hit me. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info.